Previously on Fox News Rewind, 9-11. An incredible plane crash into the World Trade Center here at the uh, lower tip of Manhattan. Another plane just flew into the second tower. Terrorism against our nation will not stand. There has been an explosion in the Pentagon, the heart of the military uh, command center of the United States of America. But we thought the building was going to topple over. It was going so... One of them did. One of them did. We're in Tower 1. We made it out. Oh, there it goes. There it goes. There it goes. There it goes. Oh, when it comes down, we're... All right. When I could finally see, uh, all I saw was I was buried in concrete. Police officers here are saying that they believe there is a hijacked plane now headed toward Washington. We just got a phone call saying Angel is next. A large plane crash about 80 miles southeast of Pittsburgh. In the opening battle of the, of the war against terror, those were our first heroes. I can't imagine anything worse than this. I said, Rich, I understand. He goes, no, Frank, you don't understand. Nobody's coming home. Episode 5, Aftermath. Deliberate and deadly attacks, which were carried out yesterday against our country, were more than acts of terror. They were acts of war. This will require our country to unite in steadfast determination and resolve. Freedom and democracy are under attack. The American people need to know we're facing a different enemy than we have ever faced. This enemy hides in shadows and has no regard for human life. This is an enemy who preys on innocent and unsuspecting people, then runs for cover. But it won't be able to run for cover forever. This is an enemy that tries to hide, but it won't be able to hide forever. This is an enemy that thinks its harbors are safe but they won't be safe forever. This enemy attacked not just our people, but all freedom-loving people everywhere in the world. So far, more than 80 bodies have been pulled out of what's left of the south side of the Pentagon building, but we're not sure when that effort will continue, since we're told the building is so unstable right now. What started out as a hopeful rescue mission has turned into a dismal recovery operation. It's great comfort to New Yorkers to know kind of bipartisan support that we have, not only in New York, but all throughout the country. We went through the most traumatic and the most shocking week in the history of the city. And the only reason we emerged from it stronger was because of the very, very strong support that we had all over the country from, from the United States Congress, the action that you took, the work of our two senators and Congressman Rangel, President Bush, and knowing that Democrats, Republicans, doesn't matter. We're all Americans, and we're going to rebuild this place. Early on uh, in New York and New Jersey and Connecticut was because so many people were in the World Trade Center at that time were simply the next day unaccounted for. Co-host of Fox & Friends on the Fox News Channel, Steve Ducey. And their family members thought, you know, obviously... uh, 
my loved one is walking the streets of New York City. They felt holding out hope. Uh, they probably got injured. They're walking around. They've got amnesia. They don't know where they're at. They don't know their name. And so we had so many people there uh, on the West Side Highway. There was a wall, uh, a fence where people would put up pictures of their loved ones. And it would simply say, have you seen this person? And then there would be a phone number. We were all in the same boat. You know, we just lost 343 firemen. Former New York City firefighter Bob Beckwith. Not just the firemen alone, I, I know, but there was cops there that were lost, and there were the civilians and the jumpers. You know, I don't want to get into that. And uh, that, it was a, it, the 11th was tough. Was the toughest uh, I ever saw. One particular night that I was at Ground Zero. Um, trying to recover. Uh, that became a recovery, you know, mission. Brother of New York City firefighter Stephen Siller, Frank Siller. I was involved in multiple recoveries that this particular night. I remember raking out the sand as the sun was coming out, dirt, dust, and uh, finding a hip bone. Um, and giving it to one of the uh, chiefs of the fire department there. And they said that's going to bring closure to somebody. And I was glad that I was able to find that. I was part of other digs. I don't rather not mention what we recovered. Uh, but it was all very sad. And um, I'll never get those images out of my head. Um, nor do I want to because um, these were people's lives that were taken for no reason. My sergeant was the last man pulled out from underneath. Uh, he came out at 7 a.m. the next morning. Former Port Authority police officer, Will Jimeno. And it's a miracle that we're here, you know, but it's a testament to the American spirit, the human spirit. Uh, you know, that the terrorists, or as I refer to them, was the cowards. They didn't win. What they did was brought us as Americans, us as human beings, closer together. So uh, as a survivor, I'm very proud to be an example of someone that can overcome any obstacle, especially the obstacles that were set before me and my sergeant, which was death, and we were able to beat it. John O'Neill um, retired, and he took a job in the World Trade Center as the head of security. Former FBI Supervisory Special Agent Ali Sufan. Before I went to Yemen um, to re-engage with the call investigation uh, back in August, I uh, went for lunch with John, and uh, on his way back to the office, um, he basically crossed the street towards 26, waved, and he said, I'm just going to be down there. Stop by and say hello, pointing towards the World Trade Center. And uh, on 9-11, uh, it was so ironic in so many different ways that the guy who was hunting bin Laden, the guy who you know, was focusing on that threat, the guy who encouraged us to to, to, to just do everything we can in order to stop Osama bin Laden and stop Al-Qaeda network, uh, who was hunting Osama bin Laden. Uh, he was hunted by bin Laden. Um, John uh, was in the World Trade Center when the planes hit. He stayed, um, and then he was helping evacuating people when the tower collapsed. And uh, ironically, um, he died on 9-11. 
We actually just found out on the website that they had his name listed and it said okay next to it. So we're heading over to the armory to see if it's really him. I, I keep up hope. I, I'm not that hopeful. I mean, I think if they were found in a hospital, they would be. I would have known by now. So that's all. He was on the 86th floor of Building 2 where the second plane hit. Um, a co-worker by the name of Lisa heard from him when the first plane hit the first building. The problem is they were told do not evacuate, everything is okay. And that's why I think he did not um, respond. The days that follow, if you recall, there was a, a belief that maybe some people survived because there was a voids, voids like where the building collapsed that some people could have survived. And... Uh, so a lot of people held on to that, uh, but eventually we knew he wasn't coming home. I didn't ever think he was coming home, and uh, but my sister-in-law eventually came to terms with it, and and um, it was just very sad. His two-year-old son was at the window every day looking for his father to come home, and, and it just never happened, and it was just very sad. It was just so sad. My neighbors who uh, lost loved ones would stop by our house and say, Steve, can you hold up this picture of my uncle? Or can you talk about my cousin? And then one, I think it was the school secretary at my kid's school, uh, came by our house. No, did not come by our house. Gave to one of my children a picture of her husband and said, could you have your dad hold this up on TV. And, and I did. And I cried because the school secretary wanted to know where her husband was. And there were thousands of people who wanted to know the same thing. My mom heard something about there being a candlelight vigil in Somerset, uh, Pennsylvania, probably about two days after 9-11. Brother of United 93 passenger Louis Joseph Naki, Ken Naki. So I was kind of a man out on mission to make sure my parents got out to Western Pennsylvania, not knowing where we were going, and probably wearing the same clothes that I had on, you know, on the 11th because I didn't have an opportunity to stop, you know, to, to get a change of clothes. So I was still wearing, you know, my uniform, my pants and, and a T-shirt. But um, we went and saw on the day after, like on the, on the 12th, we went out and, and, and touched base with my brother's wife and her family and, and his sons. And then we heard about the events in um, Somerset. So my mom really wanted to be out in western Pennsylvania at the crash site. My mom is kind of very old schoolish, and so is my dad. They were probably, you know, very Roman Catholic, where they believe that where Flight 93 had impacted the ground is pretty much where Joey's soul was. And they wanted to go out there just so that he knew and his spirit knew that 
mom and dad were there. You know, the building, the upper floors of the Pentagon collapsed, similar to what happened in the World Trade Center. Former Vice Chief of Staff of the United States Army, General Jack Keane. But I was looking at something that was really, the best I can describe it, it was like a, looking at a, a parking garage that had lost its upper levels, and the walls were all sear. Uh, and of course, no lights, because electricity was out. Um, and I said, where are all the desks and the computers and the, and the walls themselves? And he said, so they were all consumed in the fire. And I said, the people? And he said, so they're, they're all around us. Immediately after 9-11, uh, the military started combat air patrols over Washington, D.C. Anchor of Fox News Sunday. Chris Wallace. We lived in the city and we could hear the, the jets circling over at night, uh, which was somewhat worrisome because you knew they were patrolling to make sure another aircraft didn't come into downtown Washington and take out another one of our centers of power. By Friday of that week, I was able to become the first civilian uh, to take part in a combat air patrol. I flew in a, a, in a uh, Air National Guard uh, jet fighter over Washington with a camera in the back of a of a jet patrolling the Capitol. And it was an extraordinary sight because, you know, here you were in a jet fighter and there were other jet fighters along with you, and they were defending the nation's capital in a way it hadn't been defended from an enemy since the Civil War. You know, New York City and America was just, uh, it, it was so many people coming together, so many strangers was just so kind and so loving and so helpful. Uh, they were just coming out of nowhere. There was a family out of Florida, uh, the Albano family, who I've become so fr friendly with, that did such beautiful stuff for my sister-in-law and, and the five kids that these people didn't know us. They just wanted to do something, and uh, they heard about Stephen, and so they um, so they did something very special. And that was going on all over. There were nine eleven families that were being helped by strangers, and and people let them know that you know let us know that we weren't alone. That people cared. That America is beautiful, and you know America is the greatness of America is that these people die for us, like my brother, and there's other people that want to take care of the families that are left behind and it, it was just it was just so beautiful the streets of america's cities are adorned with not only a symbol of pride but of solidarity it shows that uh, we're not giving in to terrorism we're not gonna cower in our boots you know we're we're fighting you know we're not we're not gonna sit down and take it Colorado Badge and Trophy Company is down to its last American flag. Folks looking for old glory started pouring into stores on Tuesday. Walmart and Kmart have already sold more than a million. You had Joe Torrey and Bobby Valentine, managers at the time, working a chain, trying to, uh, using um, staging supplies in their various parking lots. Host of The Brian Kilmeade Show and co-host of Fox & Friends. Brian Kilmeade. It's when the players would be showing up, Giants and Jets and Mets and Yankees, on 9-11, actually serving food to the workers and to the families. Evander Holyfield doing the same thing. That stuck out. Where offensive line, we were sitting next, standing next to firefighters asking how they could help. 
everybody was equal. There was no more celebrities. There were no more sluggers. It was, they were all Americans. Well, the front office was doing a great job communicating with the commissioner's office and the other uh, teams around baseball. I was actually out in the parking lot. Former manager of the New York Mets, Bobby Valentine. I was uh, turning the parking lot into a an outdoor Home Depot, if you will, with rows of, uh, of boxes that were stacked higher than I was tall and uh, trying to label them so that when the when the request came in and it was a continuous flow of of cars coming from uh, ground zero up to our our parking lot, uh, when we would hear about the need, we would uh, try to have the need ready so that we can get it down there as soon as possible. The advice that I would give to people today, uh, if they're home from work, is to is to go about a normal day. Take take the day as an opportunity to go shopping, uh, be with your children, do things, get out, don't feel locked in. Rudy Giuliani was the face and he was the voice of New York. And George Pataki, the governor at the time, was as well. Co-anchor of America's Newsroom on the Fox News Channel, Bill Hemmer. But Giuliani came out on the night of September 11th, and he pretty much said, it's going to be bad, and it's going to be worse than we even realize. I can't remember exactly how he said it, but Dana Perino and I were speaking about this just earlier in the week. He said something like, it's going to be worse than any of us want it to be. We just have to accept it. But we as a city and as a country will get through it. His voice that night was powerful. And for a country that was searching for when is it over and what's next, he was very important. Mayor Giuliani, oh my God, he was pulled everybody together. He was such, his leadership was magnificent. He just, he was uplifting. He was positive. He was, went to so many uh, funerals and, and, and so many uh, wakes and he was, um, he was an incredible, incredible force. At this point, I believe that the people in New York City can demonstrate our resolve and our support for all the people that were viciously attacked today by going about their lives and showing everyone that vicious, cowardly terrorists can't stop us from being a free country and a place that uh, functions, and we'll do everything we can to make that point. I was able, I mean, obviously all the planes were, were grounded. Uh, I got a rent-a-car, uh, fortunately, and uh, began to uh, drive back to California to be with my family. Former White House Chief of Staff, CIA Director, and Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta. Uh, and it was a great drive because I really saw the American spirit come alive as I was driving across the country. There were, there were signs out, uh, there were patriotic uh, signs about USA Today, USA. Uh, there were flags flying. Uh, and you could sense that the American people, uh, despite this horrible attack that had taken place, were really coming together to, uh, to be able to take on the terrorists who had attacked us on 9-11. Mike Regan from New York says the fact that the victims and their families suffering has brought both our nation and almost the whole world together has made them all the true heroes of our generation. And, and you know what, finally, Nebraska, let's go out to Jim Hagan. Jim says this, it's nice to see that as a nation we now have actual heroes, unlike the sports figures we have worshipped in the past, perhaps as a nation, 
We've made the turn. This time, the turn is for the best. On September 12, 2001, the team get instructions to evacuate Yemen because Yemen is very, very dangerous. Um, so a colleague from the agency get a phone call that, um, you know, I need to call headquarters on a secure line. So we had to, you know, get our gear out and put a secure satellite phone literally on the runway. And I talked to headquarters and they said, hey, you have to stay. Everybody comes back. And um, my partner at the time, um, NCIS agent, Robert McFadden stayed with me, uh, plus a couple of guys. They said, now we're not going to leave you here alone. So they stayed. We went back to the embassy and uh, I was handed a file. And in that file was all the questions that I've been asking since November of 2000 to include the Malaysia meeting, surveillance pictures of what happened to Malaysia, uh, travels to Bangkok. It included that People that came up in my investigation, and I'm looking for them in Yemen, I was in Yemen at the time, were actually in the United States, and they have been in the United States for a while, and nobody told us about it. Immediately, I had to go and try to get real hard evidence of what happened um, in, in New York and in Washington and Pennsylvania. I went back to Kuso, who initially told me about the meeting. Uh, we tried to get more information from him. We found out that uh, Abu Jandal, bin Laden's personal bodyguard, was in custody in Yemen. He was trying to leave Yemen, going back to Afghanistan, and was arrested at the airport. So um, I interrogated him. I think we kind of underestimated the threat from al-Qaeda, and particularly bin Laden. Uh, even though we knew that uh, he had gone after attacks on our embassies and uh, even on our Navy ships, uh, there was never a sense that he would resort to a direct attack uh, on the United States. So I think part of the problem was we, we really did underestimate the threat from, uh, uh, from Al-Qaeda and from terrorism. Abu Jandal was, you know, a person who luckily he thought that he was smarter than all of us. He can play us. He was just giving us what he knows we know. Um, he is Bin Laden's personal bodyguard. He cannot deny it. Um, he can talk, you know, talk a little bit about Bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, the top leaders, the people who we know about, but nobody else. Uh, we showed him photo books that we had of pictures of suspects. Some we know who they are, like people who were involved in the East Africa embassy bombings or the USS Cole or the overall Al-Qaeda network. Um, and people that were getting their photos from the States, and we have no idea who they were. And uh, initially, he looked at the photo book, and then he uh, identified maybe about, you know, a few pictures, Bin Laden, the top leaders of Al-Qaeda, individuals that we know who they are. And he claimed he don't know anybody else. So I said, you know, please, can you go ahead and look at it again? So he looked. And again, didn't identify anyone. So I asked him to do it for the third time. And now he started to realize that there's something weird. Why, why we're having it doing third time? So there's one guy that's not known for anyone at the time, but I knew that he was a Qaeda member and he, he turned the page. So I kind of laughed and I looked at Bob McFadden, kind of like winked at Bob. And Jendel, who thought this whole time that he was playing us, was really upset about this. Like, well, what's going on? I said, well, I told 
my friend Bob here that uh, you're lying to us and he actually believed you and now you just to prove to me that, that I'm right and he got upset like how dare you accuse me of lying and I said well this guy for example I turned the page back you don't know him and I gave him a lot of personal details about his relationship with that guy shocked him and I said look There are so many people in this book I have no idea who they are but there are way more people that I know who they are. I said look at me. Do I look like an FBI agent to you? Do I look like an American operative to you? I said you don't know how many people we have in your organization. People like me who are undercover agents or you don't know who's in jail from your brothers and they are talking about you. I will never tell you because this is what I will use in order to judge if you're telling me the truth or not. So now, why don't you look at the book and tell me what's going on? So he looked at the guy and he said, "Yeah, yeah, I know him. He is so and so." And then he continued to look at all the photo books and he identified so many people, almost everyone who's a member of Al-Qaeda. He will know them. I mean, he was the person in charge of the main guest house in Kandahar. He knows a lot of people. Seven of the people he identified, seven or eight, were hijackers. That was the evidence that we needed that Bin Laden was behind 9/11. The hijackers themselves were obviously all, you know, killed uh, when they flew into the Trade Center, and so part of what you were doing in that investigation was identifying them. Former United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Mary Jo White. But where you knew. uh it really mattered was the leadership and those you know who you know plotted the attacks not so much those who carried them out so pretty quickly not only bin laden and al qaeda were identified as responsible for it but kalchik mohammed was identified you know as the mastermind there was a coffee table in the interrogation room and on the coffee table there was a yemeni newspaper and it said so what do you think about all these muslims being killed by osama bin laden he said bin laden didn't do this The Sheikh is not crazy to do something like this. I said, "Well, I know Bin Laden did it." He said, "No, you don't, because the Israelis, the Mossad, the Jews did that." I said, "Well, I am convinced 100% that Osama Bin Laden. I have a very good source that told me that." He said, "Who's your source?" I said, "You." And then he flipped. He was so upset. You don't go and say, you know, Abu Jandal said Bin Laden was behind 9/11. That's a lie. Um so you know I took I opened an envelope that I had the 78 photos of all these hijackers that he identified as Qaeda operatives put them on the coffee table and I said who are these people he said I told you who they are I said well those guys are not US operatives they are not undercover um they are not sources for the US government in Al-Qaeda they are not in jail those guys that you identified to me are the hijackers So who do you think did 9/11? He put his hand his hands around his head and he started shaking. And he asked for a few minutes. We gave him a few minutes, came back, looked at me and he said, "I think the shake went crazy." We took a car across the George Washington Bridge and we made our way to Midtown at the Sheraton Hotel over here at 52, 53 and 7th Avenue right off Times Square. and we saw everybody sitting out on their porch with candlelights the entire way that we went and when we got to the hotel there were people coming in from all parts of the country with uh with their equipment uh medical gear fire equipment gear they were all checking into the hotels bus after bus after bus um and that was friday september 14th 
on 9-11, you have a sense that that things are out of control and you you just don't know how big, how widespread, how much more damaging the uh, initial attack is going to be. By the time they have the service uh, later that week, you, you have a sense that the country has been able to gather itself. Uh, the president has promised that we're going to launch an attack to bring the perpetrators of 9-11 to justice. And now we have in a sense, the, the, the luxury, the breathing space to mourn our losses. We are here in the middle hour of our grief. So many have suffered so great a loss. And today we express our nation's sorrow. We come before God to pray for the missing and the dead and for lo those who love them. On Tuesday, our country was attacked with deliberate and massive cruelty. We have seen the images of fire and ashes and bent steel. Now come the names, the list of casualties we are only beginning to read. You know, a president has a lot of responsibilities. And, and in a moment of crisis like 9-11, one of those responsibilities is to be the comforter-in-chief, the griever-in-chief. Former White House Deputy Chief of Staff under President George W. Bush, Carl Rove. And so it was important for the country to come together in this moment of um, you know, grief for the country and to do what we could to comfort it. And um, the president... Uh, knew he had to speak to Congress, but he wanted to speak to the country first. And so we agreed that we would do this on Friday. And uh, I think it was one of the great speeches of his presidency and one of the most difficult any human being should have to give. Just three days removed from these events, Americans do not yet have the distance of history but our responsibility to history is already clear. To answer these attacks and rid the world of evil. War has been waged against us by stealth and deceit and murder. This nation is peaceful, but fierce when stirred to anger. This conflict was begun on the timing in terms of others. It will end in a way and at an hour of our choosing. People hadn't given up that their loved ones would find their way, or they'd be discovered in the rubble. Former White House Press Secretary Ari Fleischer. In the president's speech, he called it the middle hour of our grief on September 14th. And he was worried, we were all worried, that he would break down and cry. Because he is emotional. And getting through that speech and sending that right message of reassurance to the country, the world, hope for those families while preparing for what we all knew was inevitable, that was his task on September 14th. On this National Day of Prayer and Remembrance, we ask Almighty God to watch over our nation and grant us patience and resolve in all that is to come. We pray that he will comfort and console those who now walk in sorrow. 
We thank him for each life we now must mourn and the promise of a life to come. American pride also taking shape tonight as citizens nationwide lit candles and headed to churches and synagogues on this, a national day of remembrance made on a day when President Bush traveled to New York City. Some number of miles, I think about 40 miles south of, of, the, of New York, we passed through the plume. There was still smoke coming out of uh, Ground Zero, and we passed through it, and you could smell it. You could taste it. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it. It was like death. I mean, you could just taste it. And uh, we went up the... Uh, we went up uh, the East River and went to the north side of Ground Zero and then came down the Hudson so we could get a clear look at the entire dev- area of de- devastation. And my first thought was everything that we've seen in the footage on, de- on television doesn't do justice to this. I mean, it just that how big that those holes were, how, how much had been taken out was evident from the air. I'm driving down and I re- then I remembered uh, the bridges are closed. Bob Beckwith. I said, oh, my God. But I saw a cop's car with two vans behind it going over the bridge. So I gambled, and I, I made a left, and I go, I went behind them. I, I, I followed them over the bridge. I went between the cones, and, and I went in. I said, uh, how you doing, guys? I, I got to get in there. They said, you're not getting in. I, I said, I'm on a job. You know, I had my helmet with me, and they said, uh, we don't care. But but I said, you know, I, I, I got to get in there. So the guy said, well, why don't you go down to the next block there? Maybe those guys will let you in, which I did. I went to the next block, and I I told them I had to get in. Then they let me in. I saw the mess. And I, and I went to work. I didn't have a boss, so I, I just did what I had to do and I would work with the Bucket Brigade for a while and then I worked at the North Tower then I went to the South Tower when I came back you know we were we were looking for any any survivors but there wasn't any as we're driving south on West Street and turning on to Murray you're in these armed up SUVs so you can't hear anything except there was like this hub that you could hear. You could see people. And there would be these all these rescue workers and firemen and, and iron workers who were standing on the piles of rubble that lined the entire uh, sides of both of the roads. And they were standing on them and hard hats and grime and dirt, and many of them with small American flags and all of them chanting. But you couldn't hear what they were saying because of the, the, the armed up uh, SUVs. The motorcade stopped, the president's car, the spare limousine, the spare SUV was in front, the president's SUV, which he was, was turned. It was on to Murray Street. I was still on West Street, like in the, I think the third or fourth car. The motorcade stopped and people started to get out. And when I opened the door, I got hit by a wall of sand. Because what these people were chanting was USA, USA. We're working there, and and, and some 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 one of the guys comes over. He said, "Hey, the, the president's coming. The president's coming." I had to have an idea of where the president would speak, and uh, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't, you know, I looked around, and you know, I he, I couldn't see him walking up one of these walls of debris because it was it was clearly you know difficult to navigate. I couldn't see him doing it from the running board of the SUV, but I happened to look 
just south of me and just to my left. And there was a fire truck of pumper. The debris had fallen on top of it. It had literally flattened it. The tires were blown out. They looked like you know, balloons, the steel belted radials. And it was flat on the, on, the, on, the, on the ground. And it said on it, 76 engine cover. And I look up and on top of it, there are three guys. And so here's a place where it's easier for the president to get up. There's some people on top of it. So obviously the thing is reasonably stable. So maybe here's a possibility. So I go over, I look up and there are three people on top of it. One's an old guy wearing a red uh, helmet saying with the number of his of his fire company, 164, and a young Latino and a young Anglo. And both of those two guys are buff. And the old guy's like, you know, he's an old guy. And so I look up at him and I say, is this thing stable? I yell up at him. And they look down at me, you know, sort of weird guy in a tie. What do you what do you want? And I said, is this thing stable? And they sort of, you know, signal that it's, really, you know, sort of like shaking their heads. How are we going to reply to this guy? I said, jump up and down. It's, you know, jump up and down for me. This guy comes up to me. I didn't know who he was. He looked like a Secret Service guy. And he says to me, is this, is this truck safe? I said, I said yeah, it's a, it's a fire engine. Yeah. He says, he dusts off next to my foot. And he says to me, is it safe? I said, yeah. He said, jump up and down on it for me. I said, okay, you, you do what you're told. So I jumped up and down on it. And uh, he tells me, okay, he, he's yelling, it's getting louder. And he's yelling to me, somebody important's coming over here. And when they do, you help them up and and then you get down. And he goes, talks to the president. The president immediately agreed. It goes over and reaches up. You know, he's got the bullhorn in one hand. He's got a, he reaches up his hand. Beckwith is sort of looking at the entire crowd, not paying you know a lot of attention to what's going on. And the guy below him says, give me a hand, help me up. He reaches down, grabs the guy, pulls him up, gets him about three quarters of the way up, realizes it's the president of the United States and freaks out. The president came, I saw him on the corner and I think he's going towards the microphones and he makes a hard right and it comes right in front of me. And he puts his arm up. I said, oh my God, I, I pull him up, I turn him around. I said, you okay, Mr. President? He said, yeah. I start to get down. He said, where are you going? I said, I was told to get down. He said, no, no, you stay right here. And you may remember, he's got his arm draped around Bob because Bob is like, I don't do, I'm, I'm getting out of here. I'm not standing up here with the president, but the president drapes his arm around Bob and Bob stands there with him. And of course, we, we know what happens next. Thank you all. I, uh, I want you all to know, it can't go any louder. I want you all to know that America today, America today is on bended knee in prayer for the people whose lives were lost here, for the workers who work here, for the families who work. This nation stands with the good people of New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut as we mourn the loss of thousands of our citizens. I can hear you! I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... Buildings down. We'll hear all of us soon. 
those rescue workers erupted. It was a cry, a roar of a crowd who wanted justice to be done, who were searching with their bare hands for anybody who come out alive. It was, again, those two strains of America, wasn't it? It was the compassion, the hope, the help that first responders always give to those in need, matched by a determination to right this wrong. And that meant going to war. And everyone knew it. And that's what that bullhorn moment was when the president said, I can hear you. He heard the roar. He heard the American people. The nation, the nation sends its love and compassion to everybody who is here. Thank you for your hard work. Thank you for making the nation proud. And may God bless America. What I remember is Governor Pataki taking our crew through Ground Zero. And you can imagine what it looked like on TV. So now put yourself among that that steel and that smoke and all the activity of trying to clear the area. We were seven to ten days in now, and that process had already begun. Um, and when you understand how large this mass of land is for all those buildings to come down on top of it and to stand in the middle of it everywhere you looked it was around you Um, and until you got to that point i i don't think we as reporters quite understood it it was that powerful the motorcade moves up to the javits president gets out Everybody wanted to have a picture, and everybody wanted to shake his hand. And they they were dazed. They'd been battered. They were down, and they needed to see the president, and they needed to express this uh, emotions to him. How he made it through is beyond me. Some little kid comes up, 10-year-old kid, holds up a picture of his father, can't speak a word. And the president says, you're going to be okay. And your dad's going to be okay. And the kid throws his arms around the president and just hugs him. That's all he could do is just hug him. There was a there was an, an elderly woman who was sort of waiting her turn. You see, she, she immediately saw when she, we walked in the room, I remember seeing her see the president. And I could tell she wanted to, just to, to talk to him. And so she got in line. But she got in line sort of towards the end. And it was a long line. She was towards the end of it. And it was sort of wound around like a serpentine thing. And she sort of was well into it. But she was elderly. Finally, somebody got her a chair and moved the chair over so that when the, you know, and then stood in line so that when the moment came for that person to come forward, he could bring this woman forward. And it was Arlene Howard, whose son was a Port Authority police officer named George, who was off duty that day on 9-11. But when it started all come down, donned his uniform and rushed to the World Trade Center, and he died. And when, when she saw the president, she had a gift for him. She had his badge, and she gave it to him. And she said, I don't want you to ever forget. I want you to keep this so you never forget the sacrifice of George and people like him. I don't want you to ever forget. 
And for the next seven years of president of his presidency, that badge was in his pocket almost all the time. Thinking about playing in front of 40,000 or 30,000 people uh, in a, the first event in New York City, um, we felt vulnerable. You know, we were we were concerned um, as what might happen. Bobby Valentine. We, we didn't know how it was going to happen. You know, the security at the stadium was uh, looked like a war zone. There were, um, you know, men in uniforms with long guns uh, standing by the light towers all on the top of the stadium. There were dogs that that were sniffing out uh, the offices and clubhouses and and all the stands when we got to the ballpark early in the afternoon. So uh, it was it was a different um uh, type of event. And then when New York would triumph and Piazza would hit the homer, it really reverberated. And he said that's the moment that, you know, he gets brought up to uh, to this day that he could just think about. And he is indelibly linked to New York, even though he was drafted by the Dodgers and grew up in Pennsylvania. You know, people who lost loved ones, people who who were right in the thick of this situation at the time have expressed to me um, time and time again, that that moment um, uh, changed their feeling and gave them hope, made them believe that good times were ahead. And um, um, I, I don't know how something is as trivial as a ball hitting a bat and, and traveling 400 feet could uh, be that important to so many people, but it, it in fact was. Yesterday at approximately 10.30, uh, we had a staffer for Senator Daschle uh, open a letter which contained a powdery substance. Uh, the police were called to the scene immediately. Uh, we did what is called a, a field test, and uh, that is to give us a quick and uh, kind of down and dirty indication of what we're dealing with. Uh, the first field test we did on the substance came back as positive for anthrax. The anthrax seemed to pop up in some of the most unexpected places. Eventually you started to see a little bit of pattern, media for example. Um, w- what I recall was just the continued fright and edge upon which the country was living. I- I'm sitting in the Fox News Channel world headquarters. Somebody threw, uh, somebody sent anthrax to this building. Uh, in fact, the mail room was on my floor, so I was within a hundred feet or so of some of that anthrax that somebody sent. There was another incident. It was in mid-November, and an airplane left New York City and crashed minutes after takeoff. Investigators picking through the charred wreckage of American Airlines Flight 587 have found the missing black box, which they hope holds answers to why the plane crashed in this Rockaway, Queens neighborhood, killing all 260 people on board and several others on the ground. And you can imagine in the mental state that America was at that time, we clearly thought in the beginning that it had happened again. Uh, that wasn't the case. That gives you a sense of the level of tension that people were living with. Routinely, there would be suspicious packages. Usually a tourist left something. Fox News congressional correspondent Chad Pergram. But they were very, very uh, much on top of that, that every, you, you know, every lunch bag or, or briefcase that somebody forgot, you know, would shut down a portion of the Capitol. I think there was a lot of worry about bombings, car bombings, uh, 
other uh, attacks. Chief political anchor and anchor and executive editor of Special Report on the Fox News Channel, Brett Baer. Whether we had thwarted after the three and then four planes, um, whether that was it. And I think there were a lot of questions about this new, what is going was going to become, this war on terrorism um, that, soon, that started just thereafter. Members of Congress, I have the high privilege, the distinct honor of presenting to you the President of the United States. We wanted to begin to lay out uh, to the world that America's military might would uh, would be used to uh, bring down uh, not only the Taliban, actually not only the it would not only bring down uh, Al Qaeda, but would also bring down those that had allowed them to operate from Afghanistan as safe. The leadership of Al Qaeda has great influence in Afghanistan and supports the Taliban regime in controlling most of that country. In Afghanistan, we see Al Qaeda's vision for the world. Afghanistan's people have been brutalized. Many are starving, and many have fled. Women are not allowed to attend school. You can be jailed for owning a television. Religion can be practiced only as their leaders dictate. A man can be jailed in Afghanistan if his beard is not long enough. The United States respects the people of Afghanistan. After all, we are currently its largest source of humanitarian aid, but we condemn the Taliban regime. Well, I think that it was um, a message of resilience and of um, of unity, and but also a a forceful message that uh, this is going to be a long battle to come, and it did change our whole look on things. I mean, if you think about what began thereafter, about uh, if you went on plane travel, the security that was then set up outside the White House and and the Pentagon and, and beefing up security at different buildings uh, and thinking about that more and more every day, being a part of your life, um, that message was about, we're going to get through this. Uh, but it's going to be a long haul. The Taliban must act and act immediately. They will hand over the terrorists where they will share in their fate. I also want to speak tonight directly to Muslims throughout the world. We respect your faith. It's practiced freely by many millions of Americans and by millions more in countries that America counts as friends. His teachings are good and peaceful. And those who commit evil in the name of Allah blaspheme the name of Allah. The terrorists... The terrorists are traitors to their own faith, trying in effect to hijack Islam itself. The enemy of America is not our many Muslim friends. It is not our many Arab friends. Our enemy is a radical network of terrorists and every government that supports them. There was a a feeling of unity in the country. Um, You you know, he asked to go to war. You know, they passed an authorization, uh, you know, just uh, shortly after that. 
And that was what was remarkable about this, considering just how, you know, tumultuous our politics and divided our politics are now. Now, I mean, granted, you know, you have to remember President George W. Bush did not exactly come in with a mandate, one in the Electoral College, but mostly Democrats were willing to go along. The country was uh, very unified uh, about making sure that the U.S. fought back for what was a horrific attack. Um, and I remember thinking on 9-12, that was as unified as the country had been in a very partisan time. Obviously, the 2000 election I had covered down in Tallahassee, and there were Democrats who just didn't think that George Bush was you know, legitimate um, because of all that had happened. And yet, after all of that and 2001 on 912 it was as unified as i remember feeling in, in the country and knowing even still that we were going to war to go after the people who were responsible both greg palcott and myself were sent off to islamabad pakistan to sort of base until there was a safe way for someone to get into Afghanistan, and as long as the Taliban was in power there, nobody was crossing in legally. Fox News Channel correspondent Amy Kellogg. And so we just sort of waited. And also there was that run up to military intervention anyway. So there was a wait and see period. But I remember going off to Pakistan. I had never been there before. I I was shocked at the, the anger towards the United States that you could see that was playing out on the streets with big protests and burning effigies, Tony Blair, George Bush, Ariel Sharon, a lot of anti-Americanism, which struck me because we had just been a victim of an incredible attack on our soil, on our on our innocence. And um, the fact that people were, were angry at us was quite destabilizing. And I, I tried to, all of this I tried to park because I had to do my job, but I also will say that amidst all of this, the, there were Pakistani families and people who were so hospitable. I, I have rarely experienced such warmth and kindness at the same time from a whole other layer of society. And I made friends in that very tense period ahead of the war in Afghanistan um, with Pakistanis who to this day are among my closest friends. I was in one of their weddings recently. So it just goes to show that the world is a funny place and um, you certainly cannot make stereotypes. The Afghan people are very hospitable. If someone comes and sheds blood here, this is what we believe in. An opinion shared by others. According to Islam, we shouldn't hand him over to America. He's been helping us and he's done good for us. Osama bin Laden's hero status on the streets of Afghanistan have only added to the problems of authorities trying to bring him to justice. We flew into Pakistan and uh, believe it or not, about 24 hours after the uh, Taliban hosted uh, Al Qaeda terror group had uh, killed thousands of Americans and crashed buildings and planes and all parts of uh, America. We were sitting down having tea with the Taliban ambassador to Pakistan. Fox News senior foreign affairs correspondent, Greg Palcott. And uh, talking to him about what this was all about and uh, why this happened and how they came to host 
this entity. There was a lot of denials, as you can imagine, a lot of uh, uh, hand-wringing, as you can imagine. But uh, we found it myself, my cameraman, Mal James, and my producer, Kevin Monahan. We found it quite, quite eerie to be sitting there talking to somebody 24 hours after that, the the country that that person represented uh, had helped this terror group do so much damage to the United States. Afghanistan was was the was the perfect example of a place with you know this is not a country with which we were at war in any of the traditional sense. Fox News senior political analyst. Brit Hume. Uh, this was kind of a wild and woolly place where uh, terrorists were being harbored, supported, and if we were going to go after the terrorists, we had to go after them where they were, and we were in a situation where you know we couldn't observe a lot of niceties about about how um, we can't go here, we can't go there because the government is not hostile to us, and you know as far as we knew, so that had to be the rules of the road going forward. Let's use the ground force that's already there, the Northern Alliance, which already is at war with the Taliban. General Jack Keane. And they have some, the CIA had some associations with some of those leaders who were warlords, who were indeed part of the Mujahideen that helped to drive out the Russians. And we were supporting the Mujahideen from the Central Intelligence Agency during that time in the 1980s. And the CIA still had some relationships with them. So uh, the director, George Tenet, uh, made the made the posit that if, if we could link up with many of those uh, tribes again, we could bring in, the CIA can link up with them and we can figure out which would be the best ones to support. And we can bring some special forces in and link them up with the tribes on the ground and and help them with their ground uh, war plans, and then also use air power uh, called in by the special forces to support the Northern Alliance uh, ground force. George Bush ran on a platform of shrinking the shrinking the size of the military, having a lighter military, a more lethal military that can move faster, but is smaller and lighter. It's more special forces warfare, if you will, and that was because the. Cold War was over. The Berlin Wall had fallen down. Russia was a shell of itself. It really wasn't much of a military threat at that point. And so you could think differently about the military, which is what George Bush promised as a candidate. What was interesting was the plans that he had for the military about being lighter and more lethal were very much what we did in Afghanistan. It was really a special forces war. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. Well, it was different than anything we had done before, and in part that was done by a few special operators on the ground uh, on horseback uh, working with the Northern Alliance in Afghanistan. I remember traveling to a speech with Rumsfeld. I think we went to a base in St. Louis and uh, on the plane he brought back a fax of a picture of one of these uh, 
special operations forces on horseback calling in an airstrike uh, with laser guided munitions. Uh, it was unlike anything we had seen in a small footprint in the U.S. working with an indigenous force, but dropping the most high tech weapons that we had uh, to take out Taliban positions. There were enough people in Afghanistan at the time that did not like the Taliban. So it was not that hard to find a bunch of allies to do the work with us to bring them down. And in fact, they fell. They fell pretty fast. You know, it only, only took a couple of months. But uh, the harder task was uh, capturing, was finding and bringing down bin Laden and those Al-Qaeda mates. I guess you could fly in to Kandahar or Kabul. Certainly you could. We did not. We went through Quetta, Pakistan, which is about as dry a place as I've seen in my life. It is arid and rocky, and there is no water, at least at that time of the year. And we went across the border at, at daybreak the next day um, and drove into Kandahar. And it was as you would expect. It's a, it's a third world country that hasn't much advanced uh, physically in hundreds of years. And this is where Osama bin Laden led his terror campaign against the United States. Just before 9-11, he evacuated Kandahar. Ali Sufan. And he was with his bodyguards, um, you know, going from one area to another. Um, you know, went from Kandahar to Kabul, from Kabul to Khost. Um, and he was just driving between different locations and nobody knew where he was going. I mean, uh, some of his bodyguards and, you know, his personal secretary at the time, he says, you know, he jumps in the car, he said, go this way. And they go and then they said, go this way. And then he's like, stop here. And they have camp. Um, he was just like literally driving around. He had a safe house which is the house of one of the top leaders of Al-Qaeda, Abu al-Khair al-Masri, who was killed later in Syria a couple of years ago. And over there, he was briefed by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed on the operation uh, of, on 9-11. And he met a couple of Qaeda leaders uh, discussing uh, what was going to happen at the time. Um, I had people who were with them in the meeting telling me the details of that. Um, so he stayed in Afghanistan until, you know, the fall of Kandahar and the fall of Kabul and all these things. And he went to Tora Bora. We ended up driving uh, bin Laden to a mountainous area uh, in extreme eastern Afghanistan, right on the border with Pakistan, uh, called Tora Bora. Uh, and, and we knew we had him cornered there in uh, you know, a series somewhere in a series of, of, of caves and buried deep inside mountains. So the Tora Bora region is significant in two respects. Co-director of the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University, Amy Zegert. The first is that it's mountainous and punishing terrain. So it's a much easier place to hide in than to seek in. And the second reason Tora Bora is so significant is that Osama bin Laden was very familiar with that region. He loved uh, walking and living in the mountains, and so this was a natural habitat for him. Stepping foot in the country that has been the focus of U.S. military efforts for nine weeks, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld was greeted at the Bagram Air Base by some of the Northern Alliance soldiers the U.S. campaign has been helping. 
Still filled with unexploded landmines, the base is guarded by hundreds of soldiers from the 10th Mountain Division. In a small room above the soldiers' barracks, Secretary Rumsfeld met with Hamid Karzai, the interim leader of Afghanistan, who takes control of the new government in less than a week. Well, I remember um, the concerns about trying to find bin Laden and asking uh, repeatedly Rumsfeld about, was this it? I mean, had they tracked him down? And Secretary Rumsfeld, um, you know, he, he held briefings Every, almost every afternoon, and it was it became like uh, daytime television uh, because the ratings were through the roof. I mean, people were just really engaged in in uh, what was happening in the war. Number one, but number two is that how he handled them, and he basically lambasted reporters uh, in different ways. But my question repeatedly was if they knew where Bin Laden was, if that battle there was this decisive moment. And he would say, you know, we haven't found the chicken until the chicken is out of the barnyard. We can chase it around the barnyard. You know, he'd answer in a non-answer way uh, better than most politicians. But uh, I remember thinking that this could be uh, the moment where we track down the leadership. There are two wars going on in Tora Bora. The one you can see. The airstrikes raining fury from the skies every day, all day and night and the invisible war being waged high in these white mountains by about 100 special operators from the United States and Great Britain. The object of both is the capture or elimination of Osama bin Laden and his al-Qaeda army before they can escape to neighboring Pakistan on the other side of the ridge. So we had a front row seat. We got there first. We were watching, actually watching the bombardments and the invasions and they'd they'd attack and then they'd uh, retreat and they'd attack. We saw it all unfolding before our eyes, bullets raining everywhere, bombs going off. Fox News correspondent at large, Geraldo Rivera. It was very exciting, but when the bombing stopped and the rifles were silent, there was no bin Laden. We found many of his colleagues, uh, many uh, fighters, foreign fighters there in Torabor. Many of them had married uh, local women. They had settled there. They had homes there. Uh, so we watched them being arrested by the local forces, and we looked and looked and searched and went into... I can't tell you how many different caves we went into because uh, uh, the the Taliban had taken cover and the Al-Qaeda had taken cover in caves from the awesome American air power. Uh, but no bin Laden. We looked and looked and looked, and uh, he, was, he had obviously escaped. I had spent some time with Special Operations Forces along the Afghan-Pakistan border um, and remember specifically nighttime vision you know watching al-qaeda fighters go through the mountain passes uh and be taken out by by some of our u.s u.s forces and uh, it was a battle that al-qaeda and the taliban was used to fighting in those nooks and crannies of the mountains when the combat's over the u.s has taken back to arabora But Osama bin Laden has disappeared. You know, I remember in October of that year, you had uh, John Ashcroft, who was the attorney general at the time, and President Bush was about to throw out the first pitch at the World Series. The Yankees were in the World Series that year at Yankee Stadium. And I think they were going to have the New York City Marathon that weekend. And they came out with this very vague, scary warning because they thought that somebody had some sort of a a weapon potentially in New York City.
I'm a Yankee fan. Enough time had passed that at least some level of routine had returned to my life at the White House. Ari Fleischer. But as a huge Yankee fan, I did. I watched all the games of that seven-game World Series against Arizona. And, of course, the third game was the game that President Bush went to New York to throw the pitch, first pitch at. And normally I would have gone with him. But I didn't go. And it's probably my biggest regret of my time at the White House that I did not go for that pitch. I didn't go because one of the little unknowns is that when you go to a baseball game like that with the president, you barely get to watch the game. Um, The TV on board Air Force One only intermittently gets TV reception. At least it did back then until we got a huge upgrade. Uh, Two, when you're in Marine One, there's no TV. When you're en route, there's no TV. And then you leave the game usually in the fourth or fifth inning. And then we get back to Andrews, and I'd have to drive home and listen to the game on the radio. I was such a huge Yankee fan. I wanted to watch every pitch of the entire game. So I did not want to miss the game. And I just thought it's a normal trip to New York, throw out the first pitch. I don't need to be there. And was able to throw that pitch despite the Flak jacket, uh, uh, perfect strike off the rubber. Brian Kilmeade. And that was a moment that everyone will remember, especially in a city that didn't vote that didn't vote for him. I think he got 30% of the vote. He didn't even win the primary in New York. He lost it to McCain. But they were all Bush supporters that day. The next morning, President Bush walked into my office and said to me, no matter what happens in the course of my presidency, that pitch last night is going to be one of the highlights. And what he meant by that was, again, the roar of the crowd. When that crowd broke out to that tumultuous cheer of USA, USA, you could tell that America was back on its feet, feeling good about our country and cheering for us. You know, there was this hard solemnness, hard solemnity that every day after September 11th, to hear the American people cheering and chanting for our country felt so great. No one's going to keep us down, was the message. And that strike that the president threw turned into that metaphor. Enemies of Osama bin Laden around the world greatly encouraged by the arrest of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Mohammed captured Saturday in Pakistan. He is the chief operating officer of al-Qaeda, the guy who dreams up and executes terror attacks. So how can we get him to talk, and where might his information lead us in the war on terror? Khalid Sheikh Mohammed went to North Carolina A&T. At the time, he was westernly trained and hates us to, uh, to his core and went back over there, and he was pretty much the mastermind, understood the West better. Uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was the mastermind, able to think like this and understanding the targets and having a sense of how we would react. Uh, By little by little, we'd get these guys, and uh, we would take most of them down or killed or captured within 18 months, including Abu Zubaydah. He was the first big capture that gave us Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who to this day, outside bin Laden, is, uh, is the guy that we had to stop because he was going to attack again. A U.S. Special Forces team raided a suspected al-Qaeda hideout in the small town of Hazar Gadam, about 40 miles north of Kandahar, Wednesday night. After a fierce firefight in which at least a dozen enemy soldiers were killed, the mission was labeled a success. Our forces attacked two compounds and detained 27 individuals. There were enemy forces killed in this action, and one U.S. Special Forces 
Soldier was slightly injured. He was wounded in the ankle and has been evacuated. America had a tough experience in Vietnam. Bill Hemmer. And we carried the bruise of that long-running war for a long time. So much so that our political leaders became very concerned with casualties. And we went into other conflicts, Grenada in 1983, small Caribbean island. It was, it was a one-off. It was in, it was out. That was under Ronald Reagan. In Somalia in 1993, we had a lot of U.S. Rangers that we lost. Um, and we had a U.S. President, Bill Clinton at the time, who initially committed and then got out. So you can see the level of hesitation you have in our leaders with these conflicts coming at us. In the late 1990s, we got involved in a war over Kosovo, and we agreed to fight on behalf of the U.N. and keep our U.S. fighter jets at 15,000 feet. Now think about that. You're, fly you're fighting a war from 15,000 feet. Again, the hesitation and the reservation on behalf of politicians who believe that casualties to the American people would be unacceptable. And I believe going into 9-11, that was the case as well. Uh, we were a country at that point that was learning how to fight again. So among the troops, I believe at that time, they too were trying to understand their own mission. I remember distinctly events at the Kandar airport when the, when the sun went down and they would get ready in these giant stake body trucks and there'd be 50 soldiers at a time or 50 U.S. Marines at a time standing at attention ready to go into town to take on a mission. And they would be there for three hours and they would disembark off the truck, call it a night and do the exact same thing the next night. And this went on and on. And my feeling at the time is that Unless they believe the mission could be 100% effective with very little injury or harm to the U.S. military, they would enact that mission. We were still that tender at that, at that moment. Defense Secretary Rumsfeld says American lives should be risked only when a clear national interest is at stake and only after the nation's leadership has marshaled public support. Rumsfeld's comments are part of a personal set of guidelines he set for himself, and they seem likely to be reflected in any military action the U.S. takes against Iraq. 9-11 caused American leaders and the American people to rethink our own national vulnerability to a range of international security threats from al-Qaeda to rogue states uh, like North Korea and uh, uh, adversary states uh, like Iran and Iraq. Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America and to support terror. The Iraqi regime has plotted to develop anthrax and nerve gas and nuclear weapons for over a decade. This is a regime that has already used poison gas to murder thousands of its own citizens, leaving the bodies of mothers huddled over their dead children. This is a regime that agreed to international inspections, then kicked out the inspectors. This is a regime that has something to hide from the civilized world. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world. What he was doing by saying that was to identify the wellsprings of it around the world. And that we were now we were setting our face against these these regimes um, as you know, 
the, the these were the people we had to fight to resist, to impede, uh, and if necessary, to take down and take out. And that was that was a that was a big deal. Well, he was tying all of the threats uh, together, and uh, he was saying this is a major, uh, significant threat that the United States faces. Brett Bear, obviously. That opens other doors and questions about the next act and what what was to come with with Iraq and Saddam Hussein. Chairman Richard Myers, uh, Air Force uh, four star, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, that is, and he mentioned in the first week in December of 2001, after we took the Taliban down prior to Thanksgiving, that quote um, the guys on the third deck, meaning. The civilian leadership had made their minds to go to war um, in Iraq. I spoke first. I remember it clearly, and I said, "Why? Why are we going to war in Iraq? We have the Al Qaeda that we have to deal with in Afghanistan." And he said, "I don't know the answer to it." And I and I asked him when, and he didn't know the answer to that either. He said, "All I do know is that." Um, the Secretary of Defense, by order of the President of the United States, has the directed Central Command to put together a planning directive for going to war uh, in Iraq. Um, many of us uh, senior military leaders were concerned about that because we knew full well that the job in Afghanistan was not finished. There was a sort of a, a sense of a global conflict. A global war on terrorism that was underway, and that notion, of course, is a big part of what's led us into Iraq. Everything we have seen and heard indicates that instead of cooperating actively with the inspectors to ensure the success of their mission, Saddam Hussein and his regime are busy doing all they possibly can to ensure that inspectors succeed in finding absolutely nothing. The White House said it seems clear now that Saddam Hussein will not spare his country a war by leaving Iraq, but officials once again implored Iraqi forces to save their lives by not resisting. The president's message to Iraqi forces is this is not your war. A view that was ridiculed by Iraqi Deputy Prime Minister Tariq Aziz, who said President Bush wants to occupy Iraq without shooting one bullet, an indication, Aziz said, that the president has no brains. His first focus was Afghanistan. I think his focus started to shift throughout 2002, certainly into the summer and fall of 2002, about what, if anything, to do about Saddam. Now, I think there were other people in the administration who always wanted to get Saddam. And Bush held them back and said, no, that's not what we're doing now. We're focusing on the people who attacked us on September 11th, which was not Saddam. But one thing that affected Bush's thinking was that America had already been attacked in a surprise attack. Saddam had nothing to do with that September 11th surprise attack. But George Bush was not going to take a chance that we could ever get hit by another, an additional surprise attack. And when he was told that Saddam, in unequivocal terms, has biological and chemical weapons stockpiles, he had to make a very hard decision. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, 
coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. UN nuclear inspectors searching a compound in Iraq, but it is weapons inspectors that have the real challenge here, so far with little to show. And the Bush administration is suddenly playing defense. Iraq had a weapons program. Intelligence throughout the decade showed they had a weapons program. Uh, I am absolutely convinced with time we'll find out that they did have a weapons program. Amid back and forth talks of a deal that would end the standoff around Fallujah, FA-18 Super Hornets from the aircraft carrier USS George Washington in the Persian Gulf provided combat air support to Marines under fire on the north side of the city. We are implementing a strategy that will lead to victory in Iraq. And a victory in Iraq will make this country more secure and will help lay the foundation of peace for generations to come. May God continue to bless our troops in harm's way. Recently, local tribal leaders have begun to show their willingness to take on Al-Qaeda. And as a result, our commanders believe we have an opportunity to deal a serious blow to the terrorists. So I have given orders to increase American forces in Anbar province by 4,000 troops. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid was already pronouncing the surge a failure. That's what the president knows, that this war is lost. Of note, as the recent national intelligence estimate on Iraq explained, these gains against al-Qaeda are a result of the synergy of actions by conventional forces to deny the terrorist sanctuary, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance assets to find the enemy, and special operations elements to conduct targeted raids. We had a 9-11 commission for a couple of reasons, and it, it may be hard to remember now, but it was a pretty controversial idea at the time. And it took a lot of work, mostly by John McCain, Senator John McCain at the time, to forge that commission. There was a sense that we needed to better understand what went wrong, that we needed that effort to be bipartisan, and that we needed to have it have that commission's efforts be public. So even more than the 9-11 commission final report, which was a national bestseller, quite remarkable for a government report, the 9-11 Commission held public and televised hearings, and those hearings gripped the nation as we all walked through together what went wrong and how it went wrong. We welcome uh, the decision today of the president and the vice president to, to meet in one joint private session and to include all 10 commissioners. We also commend the President for his decision to accept the Commission's request for public testimony under oath by the Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs, Dr. Condoleezza Rice. To those who are watching on television, your government failed you. Those entrusted with protecting you failed you. And I failed you. We tried hard. That doesn't matter because we failed. And for that failure, I would ask, once all the facts are out, for your understanding and for your forgiveness. Plenty more talk today by Bush administration officials about the work of the 9-11 Commission and about a former insider turned critic. Another request today for National Security Advisor Dr. Condoleezza Rice to testify in public before the 9-11 Commission. Commission Chair Tom Kane says the panel feels unanimously that Dr. Rice 
should testify in an open hearing. Dr. Rice has spent more than four hours with the 9-11 Commission, and those involved say she's been very forthcoming. Most often, though, the threat reporting was frustra frustratingly vague. Let me read you some of the actual chatter that was picked up in that spring and summer. Unbelievable news coming in weeks, said one. Big event. There will be a very, 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 very big uproar. There will be attacks in the near future. Troubling, yes. But they don't tell us when, they don't tell us where, they don't tell us who, and they don't tell us how. If the president had actionable intelligence, if anybody had walked in and said, Mr. President, we have a sense from our intelligence gathering that this kind of thing is going to happen in this kind of way. He, of course, you would have, like any president in that position, begin to lay out serious and significant response. But what there was was unspecified chatter. This issue was gone over with by both the 9-11 Commission and then also dealt with in, a, in a, another fashion by the Ross, uh, uh, by the Silberman uh, commission that looked into the claim of WMD in Iraq. So, but this is partisan sniping, and, and really, I don't think amounts to much. This was one of the the, the the worst events in American history. It was the greatest terror attack on uh, U.S. soil. Uh, it, you know, we think of Pearl Harbor. This was much worse than Pearl Harbor. Almost three thousand of our fellow Americans were killed. Uh, and so, the question is, what happened? Why weren't we more prepared for the attack? What was the intelligence failure? What was the military failure? And it, it seemed to me it was utterly appropriate and important that we have a nonpartisan commission take a look at this, ask all the tough questions about why weren't we better prepared, both for the fact that Al-Qaeda was going to attack and how they were going to attack and how we could prevent it in the future. The 9-11 Commission, if you look at the missed opportunities that the Commission identified uh, in the report, um, they say one of the biggest missed opportunity is not passing this information to the FBI team working the USS Cole. Um, that was a significant miss. I think the American people saw the raw price of failure of intelligence organizational weaknesses. We saw how many things went awry before 9-11. We saw people being held accountable and dealing with their own organizational failures. And I think it's no coincidence that the most sweeping intelligence reform since 1947 in the United States happened in large part as a result of the 9-11 Commission. So I'm mean, sure there was some, some uh, finger pointing and some blame effects, but I think the most important part of the 9-11 Commission was that they recognized this, that there was a lack of communication among the various agencies in the federal government, uh, both those looking at, at threats overseas and those looking at threats domestically, and that, you know, we needed get that information out of the silos and being shared. It's been my honor to welcome uh, Chairman Kane, Vice Chairman Hamilton to the Oval Office. We just had a good discussion about the 9-11 Commission report. I want to thank these two gentlemen for serving their country so well and so admirably. Uh, they've done a really good job of 
learning about our country, learning about what went wrong uh, prior to September the 11th, and making very solid, sound recommendations about how to move forward. We really had uh, some intelligence that there were uh, those who were here uh, being trained on flying uh, airplanes. Leon Panetta. But somehow that information, for whatever reason, was not shared with other intelligence agencies. Uh, and I think the result was that uh, one of the recommendations was that uh, the Director of National Intelligence uh, be established in order to better coordinate uh, the intelligence among the different intelligence agencies. Because it was believed that, that we needed to learn the lessons fully of what led to an attack that proved uh, we proved to be not properly prepared for, that would caught us off guard, and that we must therefore not allow this to happen again. And it was a device that has been used in the past where you you know, appoint these commissions and they conduct uh, investigations and produce voluminous reports and lay blame and, and they tend to be bipartisan and to some extent non-controversial so that whatever, whatever lessons they say we need to learn, we then try to learn. It's easy though to look back and say, you know, we can trace the rise of bin Laden and we can trace the rise of Al-Qaeda and there are so many things that we should have done. Catherine Zimmerman. But if you think about that time period, we also had the threat from Hezbollah, which was an entirely different threat stream um, against the United States. It had attacked and killed U.S. Marines in Beirut, Lebanon uh, in the 1980s. Um, it actually transferred the expertise to Al-Qaeda, which is how we ended up with the 1998 truck bombings. Um, and Al-Qaeda was really Bin Laden cohering around him individuals who believed in his vision, his Salafi jihadi idea that terrorism and attacking the West was a way to open up space in the Muslim world so that the kind of eventual Muslim insurgency, the revolutions that he wanted uh, could come to the fore. We missed significant opportunity by not passing the information about the hijackers, uh, about uh, people who were in Southeast Asia, about them being in the United States, to uh, our team, to the team investigating the USS Cole. I think that was a criminal. Uh, not because of what happened later, but that's criminal because they were wanted, possibly in connection with the murder of 17 American sailors. And uh, still, somebody decided that this information should not be shared with other people investigating the call. I don't know if that will change history, but I will be very shocked if 9-11, if the operation continued if the FBI went and arrested people like Khaled Mehdar and Nawaf al-Hazimi for being Qaeda members and operating in the United States. Um, I, think, uh, I think we still, until today, frankly, we don't know the answer why the information was not shared. We know, based on the national intelligence estimates, our training and plotting in northwestern Pakistan along the Afghan-Pakistan border.
This Al-Qaeda safe haven is a direct result of our decision to shift resources from the right war in Afghanistan to the wrong war in Iraq. As President, I will always work with our ally Pakistan to root out terrorism. I'll support substantial aid to Pakistan if they act against terrorists. I also favor assistance for education and development to combat extremism that threatens the Pakistani government. But there can be no safe haven for Osama bin Laden, and there can be no safe haven for the terrorists who killed 3,000 Americans, including Chris Tinley's brother. We can't have them operating and training for the next attack. That is not common sense. I think the switch from the Bush administration to the to the Obama administration was a greater emphasis on the war in Afghanistan. I don't think there was a great liking for the Iraq war. I think uh, individuals in the Obama administration shared uh, other experts' feelings that the uh, the war in Iraq was a, a bit of a distraction away from, from the main mission post 9-11, that is to get rid of uh, bin Laden, al-Qaeda, terrorism, threats, immediate threats to the United States and to the West. Afghanistan is not lost, but for several years it has moved backwards. There's no imminent threat of the government being overthrown, but the Taliban has gained momentum. Al-Qaeda has not re-emerged in Afghanistan in the same numbers as before 9-11, but they retain their safe havens along the border. And our forces lack the full support they need to effectively train and partner with Afghan security forces and better secure the population. Our new commander in Afghanistan, General McChrystal, has reported that the security situation is more serious than he anticipated. In short, the status quo is not sustainable. I traveled uh, over to Afghanistan, you know, in over that time to after, uh, I, I guess, 13 times. And I remember thinking on the ground at Bagram Air Base and other places around that it was really sparse. And I mean, in the outskirts outside Kabul, it was tribal lands uh, run by warlords. And, you know, there was this expectation, I think, in some Afghans that that because the U.S. was involved and because they had had forced the change of the Taliban government uh, so quickly that suddenly there was going to be a McDonald's on the corner and a Kentucky fried chicken on the other corner and everything was going to be Americanized uh, very quickly and everything was going to work out great. Um, That's not what happened. And it was uh, a long, painful investment. And as Commander-in-Chief, I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan. After 18 months, our troops will begin to come home. These are the resources that we need to seize the initiative while building the Afghan capacity that can allow for a responsible transition of our forces out of Afghanistan. We, we had been informed by uh, an ally in the Middle East that there was a potential asset Uh, spy, if you will, uh, who might possibly be able to lead us to Zawahiri, who was the second in command of Al-Qaeda. 
Uh, that individual had some medical training uh, and uh, the indication was that because Zawahiri had health problems as well as Bin Laden, that uh, this person might have the opportunity uh, using his medical capabilities to actually get access to the higher echelons of Al-Qaeda leadership. Uh, we were given a name uh, and uh, uh, pursuant to our requirements, we wanted to make sure that we uh, we had an interview with that individual in order to make sure that he was a credible uh, source for us. Uh, when he drove up uh, in a car, he had been driven from Pakistan into Afghanistan. He drove up and uh, the officers from the CIA gathered around that vehicle to greet him uh, because they were excited that they might have one of the best leads uh, that might lead us to uh, bin Laden uh, in a very long time. Uh, they came out to greet him and instead of getting out on the side where the officers were there to greet him, he got out on the other side and the security people uh, gathered around him and told him to put his hands in the air. Uh, he had one hand inside of his robe. And it was at that point that he set off a, a vest suicide bomb that was very powerful, that killed seven of our CIA officers and wounded a number of others. It was December 30th inside Afghanistan. A man who the CIA thought was working for them instead was working for al-Qaeda. That trusted source was allowed inside the U.S. base, where he blew himself up, killing seven members of the CIA. When I was informed that that had happened, obviously it was a huge shock that we had lost seven of our CIA officers to the suicide bomber. But when I, when I greeted their bodies coming back at Dover, and met with the families. Every one of those families said to me, please continue the work that our loved one died for, uh, which was really the effort to go after bin Laden. Next time on Fox News Rewind 9-11. The commanding officer came in, and I'll never forget him saying, the reason you guys are here is because this is as close as we've ever been to Osama bin Laden.